The scripture reading this morning is from Mark 2, verses 1 through 17. You can read along in your Bibles or um, pull out your electronic devices or even in the worship guide. Let's read God's word together. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Well, this morning, as we near the beginning of Mark, we're coming to the last two weeks in our series um, looking at Mark in reverse. Now we have looked at what Jesus did, the resurrection, crucifixion, last supper, his kingdom teaching, and we're ending looking at who Jesus is, Messiah, provider, cleanser, liberator, and today, forgiver. Now, Mark teaches us in these two stories that Jesus is king, and he's not just a a human king, he's also God incarnate. He forgives sins on command, and in the eyes of some, his kingdom is less than desirable, for it's filled with sinners. 
These two stories, they're linked. Look at verse 10. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Therefore, verse 17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinner. So this morning, I want us to consider two things about who Jesus is. He is the forgiver of sins, and he is the caller of sinners. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful this morning for a beautiful, sunshiny day. We're grateful for the opportunity, the privilege to come and worship here. Lord, would you take this very familiar story to many of us and give us ears to hear afresh and anew? Would you challenge our hearts and our minds that we might fall more deeply in love with you today? And for any who are here this morning and they don't have a relationship with you, Holy Spirit, would you use your word to convict and draw them to faith in you. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, I encourage you to pull that out. And the first thing that I want us to consider is that Jesus is the forgiver of sins. Now at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he and his disciples, they returned to Capernaum. And they stay in the home of what most commentators believe is Peter's house. So while at Peter's home, a large crowd heard that Jesus was there, and they gathered, not just inside, but outside of the home. In verse 2, Mark writes, And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. Then in verse 3, Mark tells us that hearing that Jesus, the miracle worker, is in town, there's a group of friends who have a friend that's a paralytic. And they decide that they want to take their friend and get him in front of Jesus so that he might be healed. Now, in the ancient Near East, paralytics, they were completely dependent upon family and friends. There was no language of special needs. There was no handicap accessible ramps. If you were a paralytic, it was a horrific life. So you can imagine how difficult a life this man had. You can imagine how desperate he was for healing. So much so, when he and his friends heard that Jesus was in town, they rushed to see him. And like the bleeding woman, the paralytic thought if he could just get an audience with Jesus, then he believed that Jesus would touch and rid him of his paralysis. But when they arrived at Peter's house, they saw a large crowd gathered there. And though they tried to carry him and push through the crowd, they were unable to do that. And so they didn't give up. They came up with plan B. Now, houses in the Middle East were just really one room and had a flat roof. And there were stairs that would go up to the roof. And often families and friends, they would gather on the flat roof for special occasions, birthdays and other occasions. And so the, these friends and the paralytics see that there's no way to enter the door. And so they begin to carry the paralytic on his mat up the stairs onto the flat roof. And they begin to cut a hole 
in the flat roof. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. Because while we live in a very individualistic society, this story reminds us of a very important biblical principle. And that principle is we cannot grow in our faith in Jesus alone. We need a community. We need friends around us. We just got the privilege of, of entering into sacrament, the sacrament of baptism, infant baptism with Lydia. And as I mentioned and y'all stood, every one of you play a role in Lydia's life. Some of you are going to be in the nursery and are going to be holding her and praying over her. Others of you are going to be teaching in children's discipleship and you're going to be talking to her about Jesus. Those of us in our community group are going to be able to laugh with her and play with her and point her toward Jesus. Some of you someday might be discipling her as she grows in youth group and then eventually professes faith in Jesus Christ. And then hopefully as a community, when she has good times, we celebrate with her. When she has hard times, we hold her and we cry with her. And if she ever begins to wander off, we as a community, as friends, gather and pull her back in. We, like Lydia, all need friends around us, a covenant community, to help us grow in our relationship with him. The idea of it takes a village to raise our, our kids didn't originate with Hillary Clinton. It originated in God's word. And listen to me, there is no such thing in Scripture as a lone ranger Christian. It's very clear, Paul makes it very clear that he has established, planted what? He planted churches, local church communities. And it's important for us to be a part of those communities. But unfortunately, during the pandemic, all the statistics are showing that 30% of the folks who used to be a part of a local church community are no longer attending. Now, we know that some cannot attend because of health reasons, and that's why we stream this virtually. But it's sad to me, and I'm sure it breaks the Lord's heart, to know that there are friends and people out there that are no longer in a church, and they're thinking that they can carry out their, their walks with Christ alone. But in this passage, we see that we cannot do that. We need each other to spur one another on, to hold one another up, to pray for one another. So, these friends were courageous. They took him up onto the top of the roof. They began to dug, dig a, a hole in the roof. And you can only imagine as Jesus and those that were in the room below began to see the dust fall and then the light break through and then a larger hole and then see this man being lifted down. A hush must have come over that room. And all eyes were on Jesus. How would Jesus respond? Would he heal the paralytic? The answer comes in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus walks over to the paralytic. Instead of saying, rise up, be healed, Jesus says, sons, you are forgiven. 
Now, while we don't know what the paralytic said, I think it's safe to presume that he and his friends were thinking exactly what you and I would be thinking. Thank you for the forgiveness, but I'd really like to walk, right? I'm paralyzed, and I have a more immediate problem here. I can't walk. Tim Keller says, by first forgiving the paralytic's sins, Jesus is telling the paralytic, no, you don't have a more immediate problem. Jesus is saying, I know you have problems. I know you are suffering, and I'm going to get to that. I know you have been a victim of terrible things that weren't your fault. But you need to realize the main problem in a person's life is never their suffering. It's their sin. And let that soak in for a moment. The main problem in a person's life is never their suffering. It's their sin. Over the past 20 years, I've had the privilege of listening to so many people's stories. And so much pain and so much trauma. But oftentimes after I hear a painful story, I think that's, that's the worst. That's the most dreadful story I've ever heard. And then I go and I listen to another person's story and it gets even more dreadful and even more painful. And as a pastor and as a counselor, it's a privilege to be able to hear people's stories. It's a privilege to be able to give them space, needed space, to lament, to grieve the things that have been done to them. But for healing and transformation to take place in our lives, we need to see that the strategies that we've learned from a very young age to deal with the arrows that are constantly coming at us, that those strategies, while they helped us survive at a young age, many of those strategies today are keeping us from intimacy with God and intimacy with others. And therefore, if we truly want to heal and repent, I mean, to heal, we need to repent of those strategies. We need to repent of those sins. We need to receive God's forgiveness. And in so doing, then our union with him is established. And we can have the freeness and the fullness that Jesus wants for us. The paralytic thought his greatest problem was not being able to walk. And Jesus says, I see that you can't walk. And I'll get to that in a moment. But I need to first address the problem that's keeping you from intimacy and restoration with your heavenly Father. And that problem is your sin. And you need forgiveness. I wonder this morning... Do you see that your greatest problem is sin? Do you see your need for forgiveness is greater than your need for physical healing? And you might be thinking this morning, Todd, I've already professed faith in Jesus Christ. And you you repeat every time that you do communion that we're we're forgiven for all our sins, past, present, and future. And yes, that is true. You've already been forgiven if you profess faith in Christ. But just like if if I won a lottery ticket, and that lottery ticket was the winning ticket, and I won $200 million, well, 
Well, if I hold that lottery ticket and I never go and turn it in and cash it in, I'll never get the $200 million. In the same way, we've all won the lottery if we profess faith in him. And we've won infinite amounts of forgiveness. But we sin daily. And we need to go and we need to cash that in. And we need to say to the Lord, I'm sorry. Thank you for forgiving me. And receive that forgiveness. I love what Kendra said this morning. As she led us in the confession. And we do that every week. And Michael helps to lead us. And I'm so thankful for them in doing that. It's so important for us to remember that yes, Jesus has forgiven us past, present, and future. But that he forgives you every time. And every time you sin, you can turn to him. And you can confess and you can receive forgiveness. We ask for for forgiveness because in receiving it, it provides a relational correction for us. It helps reorient our hearts, our souls, and minds toward the one we were created to be in relationship. Jesus is the one who forgives the paralytic of his sins. Jesus is the one who forgives us of his sins, of our sins. Now, I'd be remiss not to mention a question that many of you Bible scholars out there are having right now. Because you Bible scholars know that there is no forgiveness before God without repentance. None. Nowhere in Scripture can you have forgiveness without faith and repentance. It's necessary to receive forgiveness from God. And it appears that the paralytic, he demonstrates faith as he was lowered down through the ceiling by his friends to gain this audience with Jesus, but there's no explicit mention of repentance. So isn't this passage a contradiction with the rest of Scripture? Mark helps answer that in verse 8. Look at what Mark says. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? In this one verse, Mark is reminding us that just as Jesus is able to see and discern the hearts of those who are questioned his authority to forgive sins, he is able to see and discern the heart of the paralytic. Thus, the fact that Jesus forgave the paralytic implies that Jesus has seen a glimmer of repentance in the paralytic's heart. The beautiful thing about our Savior is all it takes is a glimmer, an imperfect expression of repentance and need for Jesus for him to extend grace and mercy on the paralytic and on all of us this morning. I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in that. Great comfort in knowing that all it takes is a glimmer. Maybe not even a spoken word of of repentance, but our heart desiring to repent. And what does the Lord do? He graciously comes and he meets us. And he offers us forgiveness. Jesus is truly the forgiver of sins. 
And in demonstrating his authority to forgive sins, Jesus is proclaiming early on in his ministry that he is God. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It's a little lengthy, so bear with me. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is kindness description we should give of his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws were broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as silliness and conceit, unrivaled by any other character in history. Through this act of forgiveness, Jesus claims to be God. Thus the scribes respond in verse 7, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? And look at Jesus' response in verses 9 through 11. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus says, oh ye of little faith. Let me pose a question to you. Which is easier for me, to forgive this man of his sins or to heal him? From his paralysis. On the surface, everyone thought it was easier to forgive the man his sins than to heal him of his paralysis. And so what does Jesus do? He heals the man of his paralysis. And while this might be true to our visible eye, I think what helps bolster Jesus' defense, I believe Jesus is really saying, which is harder? To forgive sins or to heal, the harder thing is to forgive sins. And you know why Jesus can say that? Because the effect of forgiving all of our sins meant that he had to go to a cross. And he had to be nailed to it. And he had to suffocate. And he had to die. And then be raised from the dead so that we might receive forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins is always, always more great than any physical healing. And here, Jesus is saying, I am the Son of God, fully human and fully God. Beauty and suffering are the way of Jesus and the means in which he brings about shalom in this man's life and then in the lives of all who profess Faith in him. He is the forgiver of sins. 
And that's the first thing that we see in our passage this morning. And the second thing we see is that he is the caller of sinners. I heard a story told by a pastor many years ago. And in the story, it's about a, a rural church. And at that rural church, it was, you know, all these people were believing in God. They were there to gather like we are here to gather this morning to worship. And it was a beautiful church, stained glass windows, pews, and it was filling up. Everybody sat down, the choir came up, led them in the call of worship, and then the doors opened in the back. And this disheveled young man, had long hair, was barefoot, began to walk down the aisle. Now all the eyes were on this man. What is he going to do? He walks down the aisle, he gets to the front, and he literally just sits down. And then a hush fell over the crowd. The choir stopped singing. And then the eldest member of the church, he gets up. He's dressed in a suit. All eyes are on this man. What is he going to do? And that eldest man slowly makes his way down to the front. And he puts his hand on the man's shoulder. Now everybody's thinking he's going to grab him and take him out. But what does he do? He uses his shoulder to go to his knees, to kneel down, and to sit beside that man. And for the rest of that service, those two, a disheveled young man and this elderly man, sat and they worshipped. I love this story because I believe this old man demonstrates the heart of Jesus that he's not only the forgiver of sin, sinners, he is the caller of sinners. And there's no place that Jesus would rather be than be sitting next to and breaking bread with sinners. Look at verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And those of you who've watched The Chosen, you know that tax collectors were hated during this time. They didn't have any friends, none whatsoever. And what does Jesus do? He's walking along and he sees Levi and he has compassion on him. He knows how lonely he is. He knows what he's done. How he's betrayed his friends and family. And what does he do? He calls Levi to a relationship with him. And what does Levi do? He immediately gets up, professes faith in him. He belongs to him. And then what does he do? He says, hey, I want to throw a party. And I want to invite all my other tax collector friends. And that's what we see happen in verse 15. Levi throws a huge party and he invites his friends who were sinners. And what does Jesus do? He goes and he parties with them. And look at verse 16. When the religious leaders saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they questioned him. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I love Jesus' response. 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you want a statement that sums, is a summary of the gospel message, it is this statement. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We have a Savior who moves toward sinners. We have a Savior who'd rather spend time downtown with prostitutes and homeless folks. He'd rather go to the universities and spend time with atheists, agnostics. We have a Savior who loves to move toward those who are sick. Because we have a Savior who loves not only to forgive sins, sinners, but to call sinners into relationship with Him. And if we want to follow Him, and if we want to grow deeper in our intimacy with Him in 2022, we too need to find our way into the circles that we might not feel comfortable in. We need to invite our neighbors into our homes. We need to have hard conversations with our coworkers, with our classmates, with our family who don't know Jesus. We need to be like that older gentleman in the story who doesn't care about what everybody else thinks, but is willing to come down and to be uncomfortable and to sit beside this disheveled young man. This is where Jesus spent his time. And this is what Jesus is calling us to as individuals and a church body. And so I wonder this morning, who might Jesus be calling you to throw a party for in the upcoming weeks? Who might Jesus be calling you to spend time with What are the difficult conversations with friends and family members that you've been avoiding? Jesus calls sinners. And Jesus is calling us to come alongside sinners and to whisper into their ear and to tell them that they have a Savior who loves them, a Savior who sees them, and a Savior who forgives them. And that they can be restored into a relationship with their Heavenly Father. My hope is, for Hope Chapel in 2022, as we grow in our intimacy with Him, that we not only cash in the forgiveness that we have as His beloved sons and daughters, but that we also will invite our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus to come to church to hear about Christ, to come into our homes, to feast, and to go to lunch with us at work so that we might love them and care for them and speak the truth so that they might know him. Jesus entered our world. He lived, he died, and he was raised from the dead. And by so doing, it made it possible that he has the authority to forgive all of our sins, past, present, and future. There's nothing, nothing that you will ever do, past, present, or future, that can change the way God views you if you are a son or daughter of his. And knowing that, 
we can go and we can offer that same love and forgiveness to our neighbors, our friends, and family members who don't know him. And then one day, hopefully, we're all going to be with him. And we're going to be at a feast. And at that feast, we're going to eat with him. We're going to share stories. We're going to laugh. And we're going to celebrate and we're going to glorify him for the rest of our lives. And then this morning, we get a taste of that as we partake of this feast. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.